I'm excited this morning. We're starting a new series. Uh, I told you a little bit about this last Sunday. I'm going to talk a lot more about it as we roll through today. But we're calling this series, What the Son of God Said. And uh, here's what I'm going to do this morning. I'm going to have you open to the Gospel of John. And I want to share with you this morning a paragraph of Scripture that will forever alter the way that you experience the words of Jesus. That's what I want to do today. I want to change the way that you experience the words of Jesus. And here's what I want you to do. Before I even read this passage or preach this sermon, I want you to imagine one of those moments where you're, you're, you're sort of having your quiet time. You're in your devotional moment. There you are in your bedroom or maybe in your office or maybe you're at work, wherever you go, when you grab your Bible out and you just, and imagine you've opened one of the gospel accounts. Let's say you're in the gospel of Matthew and you get to the Sermon on the Mount And you're at the red letter text. You know what I mean by that? In those Bibles where when Jesus speaks, they highlight it in red letters. There you are, and you're reading the teaching of Jesus. Here's what I want you to think with me for just a moment. When you're in that moment, and you're hearing Jesus speak, what is the vision that you have in your head of the one saying these things? Think about this. How do you understand him? What's your, what's your picture of who he is, his, his actual identity? It seems to me that people tend to hear the teaching of Jesus in one of three ways, okay? Sort of one of three head spaces. The first is that this is the teaching of a historical figure, Lots of people in our culture, that's for them, that's what Jesus, this is a historical figure. He happened to start a religion, But a lot of people, and maybe even for some of you who are here, and that's okay, welcome, we're so glad you're here. A lot of people, they hear the words of Jesus and they think this is just a a, a human person in history, he started a religion, and here's what I want you to know. If that's the picture of Jesus that you have, when you're reading, when you're reading what he says, it's going to kind of be for you like your Twitter feed. You're just, it's just one kind of one opinion among many. You're flipping through. I've got Jesus. I've got other philosophers. Jesus is just one sort of philosopher or sage, and all of his ideas sort of enter the competition of other ideas, but he's one among many. Some people, though, When they read the teaching of Jesus, what they're hearing is this is the teaching of one of God's prophets. So a little bit higher picture, but he's just one of many prophets. There's lots of prophets of God and Jesus is one of them. So maybe for you, his teaching is significant because you know him to be a person who's uniquely tapped into something divine. And when you read his teaching, you think, yeah, it's, there's something deep. There's something spiritual here, but there's lots of people who are tapped into spiritual reality. And some people, when they're reading the words of Jesus, they're thinking, this is the teaching of the son of the living God. This is the teaching of the son of the living God. Now, wait a minute. Many of you are assuming that's what I think, but hold on just a minute before you run there. What I mean by that is, this is the teaching of the son of the living God as the Bible describes his identity. And what I want to do is I want to prevent you from assuming that you have a full picture 
My experience has been, even in the church, all of us, we sort of float among some of those. This is really interesting, but myself included, I, especially between two and three, he's a spiritual prophet, yeah, and then son of the living God. But like, when I'm sitting there with my Bible open, do I have a complete picture of who it is that I'm listening to? There's a paragraph in the Bible that is specifically designed to shape the way that you listen to the words of Jesus. And it's in the Gospel of John. Will you open there with me? What if we were to take eight weeks this summer and ask the question, what did the Son of God say? What did he teach? What did he focus on? What if in the process of that, we, we didn't come to Jesus with our categories or our agenda or our priorities, but we actually said, actually, let's let Jesus set the agenda. What were the things that he really cared about? And then we went and we listened to some of that teaching. But before we can do that, I need to convince you that it's worth doing. And that's John 1. Will you look at it with me? John 1, verses 1 through 5, and then I'm going to read verse 14. Prepare yourself for poetry, friends. This is a beautiful passage. Many of you already know this is one of the wonderful passages in the Bible. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was, in the beginning, with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And skip down to verse 14. And this word... He became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Okay, there's my head blowing up. Hopefully yours too. Could there be a passage in the Bible that's more poetic, more philosophical, more deep. Can you imagine a way to describe the identity of Jesus Christ in a more condensed, powerful, beautiful, compelling way? Amazing. I'll be honest with you, I feel a little bit like I'm over my skis even preaching this passage because it's so rich. So pray for me, all right, as I pray for you. How do we get into this? Where to begin? We're not going to be able to make sense of this passage until we first come to terms with the meaning of that sixth word in the first sentence. We look at your Bible. Count one, two, three, four, five, six to that word that's capital W, the word, word. You see it there? The word, word. Okay? We have got to come to terms with what that word means. What did the Apostle John mean when he called Jesus the Word? Or in the Greek, it's the Greek word logos, 
Why did he choose that title, that description, and what is he trying to tell us about the identity of Jesus Christ? That word, logos, was actually a very common word in the culture, in the Greek culture. It had a wide usage. Generally, the word referred to, so think of inner thought, reason, rationality. It was sometimes translated as science in Greek philosophy. It was any of the the rational, deep thinking that happens inside of the human mind, but always with the sense of expression. So that's why the word is translated word. It's deep thought, rationality, reason, thinking, tapping into deep things, but for the purpose of expressing them. It was very common in Greek philosophy. It went back hundreds of years before John wrote. Stoic philosophers talked a lot about logos, but for them, it was, not, it was not a personal being. It was just a, it was an impersonal force or a principle of rationality. Even Jewish scribes and philosophers used the word logos, but even for them, it was not anything that had personality or would have entered human history. But John's using this word to do something very different. And the thing you need to realize is John has got a massive problem. He has an impossible task. John realizes I'm writing a letter where I'm trying, I'm setting out to write a gospel account and explain who is Jesus. And my audience, John's audience was primarily people in Ephesus, which was a highly educated, sophisticated community made up of educated Jews who would have read their scriptures and known what the word of God was in scripture all the way to the most, uh, atheistic Gentile philosophers who had this logos concept and he's going, how do I explain Jesus in a way that captures the the widest possible audience and draws them in, in a way that's compelling. I need a concept that's, that's broad enough to capture as many people as possible, but it's gotta be big enough that it tells people the person I'm describing is incredibly deep. I love how Leslie Newbegin put it in his book on John. He said, obviously, John can only begin by using words which have some meaning for his hearers. He has to begin by assuming a common framework of language, of experience, of inherited tradition, of axioms and assumptions embodied in the forms of speech. He can only introduce what is new by provisionally accepting what is already there in the minds of his hearers. But what if the new thing that he wants to introduce is so radically new that it calls in question all previous axioms and assumptions and all inherited tradition and all human experience so that even language itself cannot serve to communicate it? What if the new thing is in fact the primal truth by which all else has to be confronted and questioned. How do you begin to explain that which must in the end be accepted as the beginning of all explanation? Ooh, I like that too. (laughs) I like that. You should too, okay? This is the problem of the evangelist. See, when John said, I want to tell you about Jesus, and the word I'm going to use to describe him is the word logos. He took a common word and he said, but actually, none of you really know 
what I'm describing. So when, when John described him, he said, when you, when you hear me say logos, I want you to think of four things. This is going to sort of be where I'm headed today. Four concepts, four headings, and I'm going to show you where they are in this passage we just read. John says, logos, here's what I mean. I mean eternal, I mean creation, I mean enlightenment or illumination. So enlightenment, like truth, and I mean relationship. Verse 14, the word became flesh. (laughs) Eternal logos, creating logos, illuminating logos, relational logos. And here's where I'm going, and here's why. So so think about this. John says, everything you're about to read about Jesus All the deeds you're going to see him do, all the things he's going to teach, I want you to experience all of that through this lens. Eternity, creation, illumination, and relationship. All in connection with logos. And so I'm just going to take a minute on each of, just a couple minutes on each of these, and then at the end I'm going to sort of tell you where we're headed. But each each of these could be an entire sermon, so... Eternal Logos. Look at, again, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. John saying, this Logos was in the beginning. The Logos shares God's eternity. He was eternally with God. And that's what I want you to think. Whenever you hear Jesus teach, If you were to compare the four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, one of the things you'd notice if you went to the beginning of each gospel, you'd realize all of them, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all make a decision, what's the best place to start my account? How do I start to tell the story of Jesus? And they all choose a different place. Mark, he just shoots right out of the gate with the adult Jesus. He quotes something from the Old Testament, and then he's like immediately the the ministry of Jesus, and that's classic Mark. Fast-paced, he loves the word immediately. Mark's, Mark's gospel is moving quickly. Matthew and Luke, they say, yeah, we gotta go back earlier if we're really gonna understand Jesus. We have to go back to the birth, so that's why we get the nativity accounts. Have you ever noticed this? Matthew and Mark, that's where we get, or Matthew and Luke, we get mangers and shepherds and wise men and all of our wonderful Christmas stories. We love those. Even in July, we love those Christmas stories, right? All that came from Matthew and Luke, okay? But not John. John goes, actually, if we're really going to understand Jesus Christ, we have to go back to eternity past, Even the birth isn't far enough back. I love how Alexander McLaren said it. He said, Matthew and Luke take us to the cradle and the manger, Mark to the prophecies of God, but John takes us back into the mists of eternity. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Amen. As created beings, we can try to think back to that moment right before creation happened. Try to do it. Try to do it. I said we can, we can try to do it, right? 
wait a minute, I'm a create. I don't have a, I can't even begin to fathom what it would be like to imagine a moment before there was anything. Created matter, time, energy, space, material. But we can try to get there. What was happening right before the moment when the eternal God said, let there be light? John says, if you could, if you could get back to that moment, the word was, Jesus Christ was there, the second person of the Trinity. What if when you picked up your Bible and you went to a place where Jesus said something, you thought, the speaker is eternal? How would that change the way you received the teaching? I wonder. We have here the beginnings of a doctrine of the Trinity. Did you see that? Look at verses one and two, where John's assuming, okay, there we are, creation has not even happened yet, and yet the word, the logos, is there, existing eternally. And the, speaker, the reader would be thinking, so this is either someone who was with God or was God, and John says, exactly. <laughs> you just nailed the beginnings of the doctrine of the Trinity. One God Three persons in eternal relationship. But my point is this, and I know this, so you're thinking, this sermon's really philosophical. I can't preach a philosophical paragraph without getting philosophical. So I need you to become a philosopher with me today. Here's my question. I'm not even going to try to describe the Trinity this morning. That's another sermon. My question is, why does John decide when I describe the eternal second person of the Trinity, the son of the living God, I'm going to use a word that conjures up the idea of communication. Why that? Logos, word, self-expression, because the reality is John could have used other Things to try to describe Jesus. John could have said, in the beginning was the force. But see, George Lucas already stole that, so. Anyway, okay. He could have said that. He could have said, in the beginning was the vision. In the beginning was the sound. In the beginning was the emotion. In the beginning was the void. (laughs) I mean, he could have said anything. But John said, in the beginning was the word. And I think I know why he did this. John says, you need to know something about God. God is a communicating God. He wants to be known. Friends, can I tell you something? It doesn't have to be that way. There are a lot of religions with a lot of gods that don't want to be known. But the creator God of all that is, the creator of the universe, the triune eternal God is inherently relational. He's a a communicator. 
He wants to reveal himself. You say, I can know God without him revealing himself. No, you can't. No one, the finite, can never know the infinite unless the infinite decides to reveal himself to us. Right? I'm going to put up a verse that I love. I love this verse so much. Isaiah 55. This is like the verse that reminds me, we are not like God. We are finite. God is infinite. Just think about what this verse says. My thoughts, this is God speaking. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Isn't that a great passage? You know what he's saying there? He's saying, don't think I can figure God out. I can, I can work my way up to an understanding of God through the power of reason, through the power of my cognitive faculties. God's saying, as far as the heavens are from the earth, that's the span. He's talking about the stars. Do you know our sun is 93 million miles away? I don't know how many kilometers that is. I just know that it's more. I know it's more than the mile. That's a long ways away. And Isaiah is saying, that's how far removed my mind, my thoughts, my ideas are from God's thoughts, God's ideas, God's ways. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that beautiful? How could we ever come to know that God? In the beginning was the word. He's a revealing God. What if every time you opened your Bible and you read the words of Jesus, you thought, this is the eternal God wanting me to know something about his identity. I think it would change the way we read the Bible. But that's not the only thing that's happening here. So look back at John 1. So we got eternal God, but we also have a creation theme here. And you notice that phrase, in the beginning. Now, many of you have been around long enough to know John's Jewish readers would have immediately thought, wait, that's the beginning of Genesis. That is the first three words of the book of Genesis. John's talking about creation here. And he is. He's saying, go back to the moment of creation. He says, go there with me. But now what I'm going to do is I'm about to make another astounding claim. I'm about to give you another lens that I want you to hear Jesus teach through. John says, eternal logos He was actually the one doing the creating. You see verse three? All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. All things, he's still talking about the word, the eternal word, this logos, Jesus Christ. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. It was this word that was God's agent in creation. John's saying, you devout Jews, you already know from your Bible that God created by speaking. Remember Genesis? His his word was so authoritative that when he would speak, things would come into existence. Let there be light. And there was light. Let there be an expanse between the waters. And there was an expanse between the waters. It It just happens. That's how authoritative his word is. This powerful, animating, brings stuff into existence that wasn't there before word Let there be creatures that swim in the oceans. Let there be lights in the sky. And it was, and it was, and it was. And John says, now, go back to that moment and realize, in that moment, 
That word was Jesus Christ, who would later come and be Savior and Lord. I love this so much. John has in mind the absolutely authoritative power to bring things into existence, power of animation, living word of the one that we follow as Savior. His name is Jesus. And it's such a privilege to know him. And it's such a privilege to read his gospels. I love it. Stephen Hawking Many of you know Stephen Hawking. He is a, f- a famous cosmologist, theoretical physicist. He died just a couple of years ago. Um, and if you know Stephen Hawking, he spent his lo- entire career trying to find what he called a theory of everything. It's a very humble task, okay? <laughs> I'm going to find a theory of everything, okay? Because I'm just lazy or bored or something. I don't know. So here's, he said the eventual goal of science is to provide a single theory that describes the whole universe. And that's what he wanted to do. And Stephen Hawking, he was actually pretty, he, he was, I don't think he was a believer. I don't think he was a Christian, but he, he did have some recognition of, of, of like God, possibly. And Hawking would say, like, typically scientists, we only focus on everything after the universe began, all the physical, material laws of the universe. And he said, typically, before that moment, that's where philosophers and theologians and religious people, they're they're thinking about divinity. But Hawking said, what I want to do is, I want to blur those lines, because I think we can come up with a theory that explains all of it. But see, John's saying, we already know what that theory is. (laughs) John's like, you want a theory of everything? His name is Jesus Christ. He's the Logos who was there right before anything came into existence. And he spoke. He spoke. I want to ask you, when you're reading the gospel and you hear Jesus speak, is that what you're thinking? (gasps) Are you thinking of that? I wonder. There's this moment in John, one of my favorite moments in the Gospel of John. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane right before he's arrested. Remember this moment? He's there. He's only there with 11 disciples because one of them, Judas, has left to betray him. And then Judas comes back and he's leading a band of soldiers and they've got pitchforks and torches and they run into the garden and Jesus says to this mob, he says, whom do you seek? And they see Jesus of Nazareth. Do you remember this moment, John 18? And Jesus, he says something really interesting. He says, I am he. And what happens in John's gospel is the moment he says that, it's basically, it's I am. (laughs) All of them fall over. They fly back. Can you imagine that? Who do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth. I am, and they fall over. This is the authority of the words of Christ. Or do you remember on Easter Sunday when we stood out of the, outside of the tomb of Lazarus and Jesus was standing there and he said, Lazarus, come out. And remember how I told you he needed to specify who he was talking to? 
Because if he didn't say Lazarus, every dead person in the graveyard that day would have come out of their tomb. It would have been a zombie apocalypse, okay, right there in the Bible. So Jesus is like, let me be really clear who I'm talking to. Only Lazarus come out. Well, why? Because this is not just a Jewish rabbi. This is not just another philosopher. This is not just a really wise person who's somewhat connected to the things of God. This is the eternal, creating, living God of the universe. And when he speaks, when he teaches, we're listening to the creating, powerful, animating words of the eternal God. Amen? Is it worth it this summer to take some time and ask the question, what did the Son of God say? I think so. I think so. Two more real quick. I promise I'm going to go fast on these. You guys are like, dude, you're going to be here till next Sunday. Get on with it, okay? Okay, illuminating logos. Look at verses four and five now. John's been thinking about creation. That causes him to think about light and darkness, right? Because what happened in the creation account? There was darkness, And God said, let there be light. And so what John does now is he says, now I'm going to talk a little bit about light and the darkness. Verses four and five. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness does not overcome it. John's going to push the light concept now beyond just physical light and darkness. In the Genesis account, it's physical darkness and light is, penetrates that darkness. And John's going to say, yes, and light and darkness are these universal religious symbols. And this is what I really want you to realize when we're talking about Jesus, the logos. The light has entered the darkness now. In John's gospel, darkness is a metaphor that he uses over and over and over. And every time he speaks of darkness, he's talking about evil. Think about this. Evil and lies. Lies and evil. And he describes a world that's, that's trapped in darkness. What is the solution? God says, I need to send light. I need to send someone who is life and light. So Jesus is the light of the world, he says. I am the light of the world. Jesus is the revelation of the truth of God. Every word that Jesus spoke was like light penetrating the darkness of our world. All of the lies, all of the misinformation. You say, what's the solution? I'm living in a culture where I'm literally bombarded with people's opinions about how to think about things. I can go online, I can go on Twitter, I can go on Instagram, and everyone thinks they know how to think rightly about a million different things. What am I supposed to do? Because I read one person, they say one thing, and then I scroll down, I read another person, they say a different thing, and I'm just, I'm drowning in a sea of information, and none of it is helping me become more wise. And John says, the light has penetrated the darkness. Do you want to go to somebody's Twitter feed where every single thing he says you know is absolute truth. It's Jesus at Twitter dot. I don't even know how you like describe a Twitter handle, all right? It's logos. Read the words of Jesus. 
read the words of Jesus. And not only that, he's relational. So look at verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. This verse is just so powerful because he basically, John is saying, this eternal divine logos, he left, he left the Father's side, he entered our world. He didn't cease to be logos, he squeezed himself into frail humanity, he took on flesh, and he entered our world. Why? To form a relationship with you. Every time Jesus speaks, he's drawing you in. That phrase, the word became flesh, it's this really powerful phrase. It's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the word that describes a tent or a tabernacle. This would take you back to Exodus when God traveled with his people from, from Egypt all the way to the promised land and he tabernacled among them. They would set up the tent and the, and the Shekinah glory, the presence of the living God was there. And John is saying, that's now fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is... He's the fulfillment of God's tabernacle. He's, he literally, Jesus has pitched a tent among his people. He's with us so that we can know God, have a full revelation of the identity of God. When I was a young Christian, I had a mentor who, he told me, and I want to recommend this to you. He said, Adam, when you're, when you're reading your Bible and you're sort of um, doing your devotions, you can read from the Psalms and the Proverbs, go to, go to the New Testament letters, read the Old Testament, absolutely. But here's what he said, you should always, no matter where else you're reading, always be reading a gospel account. I love this. I recommend this. He was like, read Genesis? Yes, but then go read something in John or Matthew. Read the Psalms? Absolutely. But then go over to Luke and spend time listening to Jesus teach. And I think this is why. He, he got it. He understood. The person, there's like, there's something about going and listening to the very words of Jesus that's just another, it's next level profound and true. I love that. I love that. So here's what we're going to do. This summer, we're just going to go on a tour of some of the things that Jesus said. What did the Son of God say? Well, he said a lot. <laughs> How do we choose what to focus on? We're going to let Jesus set the agenda. We've spent some time thinking about what were the things that seemed to really matter to Jesus? What did he focus on? So, for example, what did the Son of God say about the justice of God? He talked about that a lot. What did the Son of God say about the Spirit of God. You know how much Jesus talked about the Holy Spirit? It would really shape our thinking if we spent a little time on that. What did the Son of God say about the Church of God? What did the Son of God say about the Kingdom of God? Or what did the Son of God say about the Word of God? That's what we're going to go do next Sunday. What did, what did he say about the Bible? This is really interesting. In fact, I'm just going to give you a little morsel right now, just a little preview. Turn, if you will, in your Bible, go to Mark chapter 12, and let me just give you a little introduction to what Jesus said about the Bible. You say, well, why would you do that? 
Why do we care about what Jesus said about the Bible? Now, I'm talking about the Old Testament now because at the time Jesus spoke, Old Testament. So why would you care what Jesus had to say about it? Well, think about this. There's a lot of reasons why a person may or may not have confidence in the Bible. And I could stand up here and I could try to convince you, hey, you should trust the Bible, and I could give you reasons. I could, I could go to all the passages that are confusing or perplexing, and I could say, there's actually a really good explanation for that, and I could work through all those and try to prove to you, hey, the Bible's reliable, and that'd be one way to do it. Or I could go to places and say, here's what the Bible says about the Bible, but that's a little circular, right? But what if we actually started with, what did Jesus say about the Bible? You say, why should the church trust the Bible? Because Jesus trusted the Bible. Jesus had a very high view of Scripture. For example, Mark 12. This is uh, verses 35 to 37. As Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? And Jesus said, David himself in the Holy Spirit declared... The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? Now, Jesus is trying to make a point, and I almost never say this, but don't pay attention to any of those details. Here's my point. Did you notice how Jesus described the Bible right there in verse 36? Just look at that phrase. David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared And then Jesus quotes Psalm 110. So here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, when David would sit down to write a psalm, the Holy Spirit was there. And he wrote in the Holy Spirit. This is where we get our word inspiration. Think about that word, inspiration. The Spirit is in there. It's this really profound thought that when you read the words of David in the Old Testament, you're not just reading a human being who's thinking about something. The Holy Spirit is there. Peter describes it as the Spirit is there carrying a human author along so that the outcome is Holy Scripture inspired. Paul says it's Spirit-breathed. God breathed. And Jesus says, that's how I think about the Old Testament. That's how I think about the Bible. And so we can have a lot of confidence in God's word. But I want to take a Sunday next week and tell you more. So come back next Sunday for that. What the Son of God said. Here's where we're going. You excited about this? Lie to me right now. You excited? (laughs) Amen. Good. Okay. Will you do this? Let's pray. Let's pray. We're going to take communion. We're going to worship. Here comes the worship team. Heavenly Father, what what an opportunity we have right now. Even in our singing. Even in our moment of communion. To ask the question... Do we really see you for who you are, King Jesus? Savior, yes. Lord, yes. And teacher. But even as our teacher, what kind of authority do you have? Or truth? Capture us today, we pray. I pray for 
all of my friends here who are newer visiting guests, that they would feel so welcome in this place, Lord. We love you. What a privilege it is to be gathered as your church family. Be with us this summer as we open the Gospels and go to all these different places where Jesus spoke and taught. Change our church, we pray. May we become more like you, King Jesus, we pray. And we pray it in your name. Everyone said, amen.